Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Something New by P.G. Woodhouse Chapter One The sunshine of a fair spring morning fell graciously on London Town. Out in Piccadilly, its heartening warmth seemed to infuse into traffic and pedestrians alike a novel jauntiness, so that bus drivers jested and even the lips of chauffeurs uncurled into not unkindly smiles. Policemen whistled at their posts, clerks on their way to work. Beggars approached the task of trying to persuade perfect strangers to bear the burden of their maintenance with that optimistic vim which makes all the difference. It was one of those happy mornings. At nine o'clock precisely, the door of number seven, Arundel Street, Leicester Square, opened, and a young man stepped out. Of all the spots in London which may fairly be described as backwaters, there is none that answers so completely to the description as Arundel Street, Leicester Square. Passing along the north sidewalk of the square, just where it joins Piccadilly, you hardly notice the bottleneck opening of the tiny cul-de-sac. Day and night, the human flood roars past, ignoring it. Arundel Street is less than 40 yards in length, and though there are two hotels in it, they are not fashionable hotels. It is just a backwater. In shape, Arundel Street is exactly like one of those flat stone jars in which Italian wine of the cheaper sort is stored. The narrow neck that leads off Leicester Square opens abruptly into a small court, Hotels occupy two sides of this. The third is at present given up to rooming houses. These are always just going to be pulled down in the name of progress to make room for another hotel. But they never do meet with that fate. And as they stand now, so will they, in all probability, stand for generations to come. They provide single rooms of moderate size, the bed modestly hidden during the day behind a battered screen. The rooms contain a table, an easy chair, a hard chair, a bureau, and a round tin bath, which, like the bed, goes into hiding after its useful work is performed. And you may rent one of these rooms, with breakfast thrown in, for five dollars a week. Ash Marson had done so, he had rented the second floor front of number seven. Twenty-six years before this story opens, there had been born to Joseph Marson, minister, and Sarah, his wife, of Hailing, Massachusetts, in the United States of America, a son. This son, christened Ash, after a wealthy uncle who subsequently double-crossed them by leaving his money to charities, in due course proceeded to Harvard to study for the ministry. 
So far as can be ascertained from contemporary records, he did not study a great deal for the ministry, but he did succeed in running the mile in four and a half minutes and the half mile at a correspondingly rapid speed, and his researches in the art of long jumping won him the respect of all. That he should be awarded at the conclusion of his Harvard career one of those scholarships at Oxford University instituted by the late Cecil Rhodes for the encouragement of the liberal arts was a natural sequence of events. That was how Ash came to be in England. The rest of Ash's history follows almost automatically. He won his blue for athletics at Oxford and gladdened thousands by winning the mile and the half mile two years in succession against Cambridge at Queen's Club. But owing to the pressure of other engagements, he unfortunately omitted to do any studying, and when the hour of parting arrived, he was unfitted for any of the learned professions. Having, however, managed to obtain a sort of degree, enough to enable him to call himself a Bachelor of Arts, and realizing that you can fool some of the people some of the time, he applied for and secured a series of private tutorships. A private tutor is sort of a blend of poor relation and nursemaid, and few of the stately homes of England are without one. He is supposed to instill learning and deportment into the small son of the house, but what he is really there for is to prevent the latter from being a nuisance to his parents when he is home from school on his vacation. Having saved a little money at this dreadful trade, Ash came to London and tried newspaper work. After two years of moderate success, he got in touch with the Mammoth Publishing Company. The Mammoth Publishing Company, which controls several important newspapers, a few weekly journals, and a number of other things, does not disdain the pennies of the office boy and the junior clerk. One of its many profitable ventures is a series of paper-covered tales of crime and adventure. It was here that Ash found his niche. Those adventures of Gridley Quayle, investigator, which are so popular with a certain section of the reading public, were his work. Until the advent of Ash and Mr. Quayle, the British Pluck Library had been written by many hands and included the adventures of many heroes. But in Gridley Quayle, the proprietors held that the ideal had been reached, and Ash received a commission to conduct the entire British Pluck Library, monthly, himself. On the meager salary paid him for these labors, he had been supporting himself ever since. This was how Ash came to be in Arundel Street, Leicester Square, on this May morning. He was a tall, well-built, fit-looking young man, with a clear eye and a strong chin, and he was dressed, as he closed the front door behind him, in a sweater, flannel trousers, and rubber-soled gymnasium shoes. In one hand, he bore a pair of Indian clubs, in the other, a skipping rope. Having drawn in and expelled the morning air in a measured and solemn fashion, which the initiated observer would have recognized as that scientific deep breathing so popular nowadays, he laid down his clubs, adjusted his rope, and began to skip. When he had taken the second floor front of number seven, three months before, Ash Marson had realized 
that he must forego those morning exercises which had become a second nature to him, or else defy London's unwritten law and brave London's mockery. He had not hesitated long. Physical fitness was his gospel. On the subject of exercise, he was confessedly a crank. He decided to defy London. The first time he appeared in Arundel Street in his sweater and flannels, he had barely whirled his Indian clubs once around his head before he had attracted the following audience. A. Two cabmen, one intoxicated. B. Four waiters from the Hotel Matisse. C. Six waiters from the Hotel Privatali. D. Six chambermaids from the Hotel Matisse. E. Five chambermaids from the Hotel Privatali. F. The proprietor of the Hotel Matisse. G. The proprietor of the Hotel Privatali. H. A street cleaner. I. Eleven nondescript loafers. J. Twenty-seven children. K. A cat. They all laughed, even the cat, and kept on laughing. The intoxicated cabman called Ash Sunny Jim, and Ash kept on swinging his clubs. A month later, such as the magic of perseverance, his audience had narrowed down to the twenty-seven children. They still laughed, but without that ringing conviction which the sympathetic support of their elders had lent them. And now, after three months, the neighborhood, having accepted Ash and his morning exercises as a natural phenomenon, paid him no further attention. On this particular morning, Ash Marson skipped with even more than his usual vigor. This was because he wished to expel by means of physical fatigue a small devil of discontent, of whose presence within him he had been aware ever since getting out of bed. It is in the spring that the ache for the larger life comes on us, and this was a particularly mellow spring morning. It was the sort of morning when the air gives us a feeling of anticipation, a feeling that, on a day like this, things surely cannot go jogging along in the same dull old groove. A premonition that something romantic and exciting is about to happen to us. But the southwest wind of spring brings also remorse. We catch the vague spirit of unrest in the air, and we regret our misspent youth. Ash was doing this. Even as he skipped, he was conscious of a wish that he had studied harder at college and was now in a position to be doing something better than hack work for a soulless publishing company. Never before had he been so completely certain that he was sick to death of the rut into which he had fallen. Skipping brought no balm. He threw down his rope and took up the Indian clubs. Indian clubs left him still unsatisfied. The thought came to him that it was a long time since he had done his Larson exercises. Perhaps they would heal him. The Larson exercises, invented by a certain Lieutenant Larson of the Swedish Army, have almost every sort of merit. They make a man strong, supple, and slender. But they are not dignified. Indeed, to one seeing them suddenly and without warning for the first time, they are markedly humorous. The only reason why King Henry of England, 
whose son, sank with the white ship, never smiled again, was because Lieutenant Larson had not then invented his admirable exercises. So complacent, so insolently unselfconscious had Ash become in the course of three months, owing to his success in inducing the populace to look on anything he did with the indulgent eye of understanding, that it simply did not occur to him when he abruptly twisted his body into the shape of a corkscrew, in accordance with the directions in the lieutenant's book for the consummation of exercise one, that he was doing anything funny. And the behavior of those present seemed to justify his confidence. The proprietor of the Hotel Matisse regarded him without a smile. The proprietor of the Hotel Privatali might have been in a trance for all the interest he displayed. The hotel employees continued their tasks impassively. The children were blind and dumb. The cat across the way unheeding. But even as he unscrambled himself and resumed a normal posture, from his immediate rear there rent the quiet morning air a clear and musical laugh. It floated out on the breeze and hit him like a bullet. Three months ago, Ash would have accepted the laugh as inevitable and would have refused to allow it to embarrass him. But long immunity from ridicule had sapped his resolution. He spun round with a jump, flushed and self-conscious. From the window of the first floor front of number seven, a girl was leaning. The spring sunshine played on her golden hair and lit up her bright blue eyes. "'fixed on his flanneled and sweatered person "'with a fascinated amusement. "'Even as he turned, the laugh smote him afresh. "'From the space of perhaps two seconds, "'they stared at each other eye to eye. "'Then she vanished into the room. "'Ash was beaten. Three months ago, a million girls "'could have laughed at his morning exercises "'without turning him from his purpose.' Today, this one scoffer, alone and unaided, was sufficient for his undoing. The depression which exercise had begun to dispel surged back on him. He had no heart to continue. Sadly, gathering up his belongings, he returned to his room and found a cold bath, tame and uninspiring. The breakfasts included in the rent provided by Mrs. Bell, the landlady of number seven, were held by some authorities to be specially designed to quell the spirits of their victims, should they tend to soar excessively. By the time Ash had done his best with the disheveled fried egg, the chicory, blasphemously called coffee, and the charred bacon, misery had him firmly in its grip. And when he forced himself to the table and began to try to concoct the latest of the adventures of Gridley Quail, investigator, his spirit groaned within him. This morning, as he sat and chewed his pen, his loathing for Gridley seemed to have reached its climax. It was his habit in writing these stories to think of a good title first, and then fit an adventure to it. And overnight, in a moment of inspiration, he had jotted down on an envelope the words, The Adventure of the Wand of Death, it was with the sullen repulsion of a vegetarian who finds a caterpillar in his salad that he now sat glaring at them.
The title had seemed so promising overnight, so full of strenuous possibilities. But now that the moment had arrived for writing the story, its flaws became manifest. What was a wand of death? It sounded good, but coming down to hard facts, what was it? You cannot write a story about a wand of death without knowing what a wand of death is. And conversely, if you have thought of such a splendid title, you cannot jettison it offhand. Ash rumpled his hair and gnawed his pen. There came a knock at the door. Ash spun round in his chair. This was the last straw. If he had told Mrs. Ball once that he was never to be disturbed in the morning on any pretext whatsoever, he had told her twenty times. It was simply too infernal to be endured if his work time was to be cut into like this. Ash ran over in his mind a few opening remarks. Come in, he shouted, and braced himself for battle. A girl walked in. The girl of the first floor front. The girl with the blue eyes, who had laughed at his Larson exercises. Various circumstances contributed to the poorness of the figure Ash cut in the opening moments of this interview. In the first place, he was expecting to see his landlady, whose height was about four feet six, and the sudden entry of somebody who was about five feet seven threw the universe temporarily out of focus. In the second place, in anticipation of Mrs. Bell's entry, he had twisted his face into a forbidding scowl, and it was no slight matter to change this, on the spur of the moment, into a pleasant smile. Finally, a man who has been sitting for half an hour in front of a sheet of paper bearing the words, The Adventure of the Wand of Death, and trying to decide what a wand of death might be, has not his mind under proper control. The net result of these things was that, for perhaps half a minute, Ash behaved absurdly. He goggled and he yammered. An alienist, had one been present, would have made up his mind about him without further investigation. For an appreciable time, he did not think of rising from his seat. When he did, the combined leap and twist he executed practically amounted to a Larson exercise. Nor was the girl unembarrassed. If Ash had been calmer, he would have observed on her cheek the flush which told that she, too, was finding the situation trying. But woman, being ever better equipped with poise than man, it was she who spoke first. "'I'm afraid I'm disturbing you.' "'No, no,' said Ash. "'Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. No. Oh, no, not at all. No.' and would have continued to play on the theme indefinitely had not the girl spoken again. "'I wanted to apologize,' she said, "'for my abominable rudeness in laughing at you just now. "'It was idiotic of me, and I don't know why I did it. "'I'm sorry.' Science, with a thousand triumphs to her credit, has not yet succeeded in discovering the correct reply for a young man to make who finds himself in the appalling position of being apologized to by a pretty girl. If he says nothing, he seems sullen and unforgiving. If he says anything, he makes a fool of himself. Ash, hesitating between these two courses, 
suddenly caught sight of the sheet of paper over which he had been poring so long. "'What is a wand of death?' he asked. "'I beg your pardon? "'A wand of death? "'I don't understand.' "'The delirium of the conversation was too much for Ash. "'He burst out laughing. "'A moment later the girl did the same, "'and simultaneously embarrassment ceased to be. "'I suppose you think I'm mad,' said Ash. "'Certainly,' said the girl. "'Well, I should have been if you hadn't come in. "'Why was that? "'I was trying to write a detective story. "'I was wondering whether you were a writer. "'Do you write?' "'Yes. Do you ever read home gossip?' "'Never. "'You were quite right to speak in that thankful tone. "'It's a hard little paper, "'all brown paper patterns and advice to the lovelorn and puzzles. "'I do a short story for it every week, under various names. "'A duke or an earl goes with each story. "'I loathe it intensely. "'I am sorry for your troubles,' said Ash firmly. "'But we are wandering from the point.' "'What is a wand of death?' "'A wand of death. "'A wand of death.' "'The girl frowned reflectively. "'Why, of course, it's the sacred ebony stick "'stolen from the Indian temple, "'which is supposed to bring death to whoever possesses it. "'The hero gets hold of it, "'and the priests dog him and send him threatening messages. "'What else could it be?' "'Ash could not restrain his admiration.' "'This is genius.' "'Oh, no. "'Absolute genius. "'I see it all. "'The hero calls in Gridley Quayle, "'and that patronizing ass, "'by the aid of a series of wicked coincidences, "'solves the mystery. "'And there I am, "'with another month's work done.' "'She looked at him with interest. "'Are you the author of Gridley Quayle?' "'Don't tell me read him.' "'I do not read him.' "'but he is published by the same firm that publishes Home Gossip, "'and I can't help seeing his cover sometimes "'while I'm waiting in the waiting room to see the editress. "'Ash felt like one who meets a boyhood's chum on a desert island. "'Here was a real bond between them. "'Does the mammoth publish you too? "'Why, we are comrades in misfortune, fellow serfs. "'We should be friends. Shall we be friends?' "'I should be delighted. "'Shall we shake hands, sit down, and talk about ourselves a little? "'But I am keeping you from your work. "'An errand of mercy.' "'She sat down. "'It is a simple act, this of sitting down, "'but like everything else, it may be an index to character. "'There was something wholly satisfactory to Ash "'in the manner in which this girl did it. "'She neither seated herself on the extreme edge of the easy chair,' "'as one braced for instant flight. "'Nor did she wallow in the easy chair "'as one come to stay for the weekend. "'She carried herself in an unconventional situation "'with an unstudied self-confidence "'that he could not sufficiently admire. "'Etiquette is not rigid in Arundel Street, "'but nevertheless a girl in a first-floor front "'may be excused for showing surprise and hesitation.' when invited to a confidential chat with a second-floor front young man, whom she's known only five minutes. But there is a Freemasonry among those who live in large cities on small earnings. "'Shall we introduce ourselves?' said Ash. 
"'Or did Mrs. Bell tell you my name? "'By the way, you have not been here long, have you? "'I took my room day before yesterday. "'But your name, if you are the author of Gridley Quayle, "'is Felix Cloverley, isn't it?' "'Good heavens, no. "'Surely you don't think anyone's name could really be Felix Cloverley. "'That is only the cloak under which I hide my shame. "'My real name is Marson, Ash Marson.' And yours? Valentine, Joan Valentine. Will you tell me the story of your life, or shall I tell mine first? I don't know that I have any particular story. I am an American. Not American? Why not? Because it is too extraordinary, too much like a gridly quail coincidence. I am an American. Well, so are a good many other people. You miss the point. We are not only serfs, we are fellow exiles. You can't round the thing off by telling me you were born in Hailing, Massachusetts, I suppose. I was born in New York. Surely not. I didn't know anybody was. Why Hailing, Massachusetts? That's where I was born. I am afraid I've never heard of it. Strange. I know your hometown quite well. "'but I have not yet made my birthplace famous. "'In fact, I doubt whether I ever shall. "'I am beginning to realize that I am one of the failures. "'How old are you? Twenty-six. "'You are only twenty-six and you call yourself a failure. "'I think that is a shameful thing to say. "'What would you call a man of twenty-six "'whose only means of making a living "'was the writing of gridly quail stories? "'An empire builder?' How do you know it's your only means of making a living? Why don't you try something new? Such as? How should I know? Anything that comes along. Good gracious, Mr. Marson. Here you are in the biggest city in the world, with chances for adventure, simply shrieking to you on every side. I must be deaf. The only thing I've heard shrieking to me on every side has been Mrs. Bell for the week's rent. Read the papers. Read the advertisement columns. I'm sure you'll find something sooner or later. Don't get into a groove. Be an adventurer. Snatch at the next chance, whatever it is. Ash nodded. Continue, he said. Proceed. You are stimulating me. But why should you want a girl like me to stimulate you? Surely London is enough to do it without my help. You can always find something new, surely. Listen, Mr. Marson... I was thrown on my own resources about five years ago. Never mind how. Since then, I have worked in a shop, done typewriting, been on the stage, had a position as governess, been a lady's maid. A what? A lady's maid? Why not? It was all experience. And I can assure you, I would much rather be a lady's maid than a governess. I think I know what you mean. I was a private tutor once. I suppose a governess is the female equivalent. I've often wondered what General Sherman would have said about private tutoring if he expressed himself so breezily about mere war. Was it fun being a lady's maid? It was pretty good fun, and it gave me an opportunity of studying the aristocracy in its native haunts, which has made me the gossip's established authority on dukes and earls. Ash drew a deep breath. Not a scientific deep breath, but one of admiration. You are perfectly splendid. 
Splendid. I mean you have such pluck. Oh, well, I keep on trying. I'm twenty-three, and I haven't reached anything much yet. But I certainly don't feel like sitting back and calling myself a failure. Ash made a grimace. All right, he said, I've got it. I meant you to, said Joan placidly. I hope I haven't bored you with my autobiography, Mr. Marson. I'm not setting myself up as a shining example, but I do like action and hate stagnation. You are absolutely wonderful, said Ash. You are a human correspondence course in efficiency, one of the ones you see advertised in the back pages of the magazines, beginning, Young man, are you earning enough? with a picture showing the dead beat gazing wistfully at the boss's chair. You would galvanize a jellyfish. If I have really stimulated you... I think that was another slam, said Ash pensively. Well, I deserve it. Yes, you have stimulated me. I feel like a new man. It's queer that you should have come to me right on top of everything else. I don't remember when I felt so restless and discontented as this morning. It's the spring. I suppose it is. I felt like doing something big and adventurous. Well, do it then. You have a morning post on the table. Have you read it? I glanced at it. But you haven't read the advertisement pages. Read them. They may contain just the opening you want. Well, I'll do it. But my experience of advertisement pages is that they are monopolized by philanthropists who want to lend you any sum from ten to a hundred thousand pounds on your note of hand only. However, I will scan them. Joan rose and held out her hand. Goodbye, Mr. Marson. You've got your detective story to write, and I have to think out something with a duke in it by tonight, so I must be going. She smiled. We have traveled a good way from the point where we started, but I may as well go back to it before I leave you. I'm sorry I laughed at you this morning. Ash clasped her hand in a fervent grip. I'm not. Come and laugh at me whenever you feel like it. I like being laughed at. Why, when I started my morning exercises, half of London used to come and roll about the sidewalks in convulsions. I'm not an attraction any longer, and it makes me feel lonesome. There are twenty-nine of those Larson exercises, and you saw only part of the first. You have done so much for me that if I can be of any use to you in helping you to greet the day with a smile, I shall be only too proud. Exercise six is a surefire mirth provoker. I'll start with it tomorrow morning. I can also recommend exercise eleven, a scream. Don't miss it. Very well. Well, goodbye for the present. Goodbye. She was gone, and Ash, thrilling with new emotions, stared at the door which had closed behind her. He felt as though he'd been wakened from sleep by a powerful electric shock. Close behind the sheet of paper on which he had inscribed the now luminous and suggestive title of his new gridly quail story lay the morning post, the advertisement columns of which he had promised her to explore. The least he could do was to begin at once. His spirit sank as he did so. It was the same old game. A Mr. Brian McNeil, though doing no business with minors, was willing, even anxious, to part with his vast fortune to anyone over the age of twenty-one, whose means happened to be a trifle straightened. This good man required no security whatever, 
Nor did his rivals in generosity, the Misters Angus Bruce, Duncan MacFarlane, Wallace McIntosh, and Donald McNabb. They, too, showed a curious distaste for dealing with minors, but anyone of maturer years could simply come round to the office and help himself. Ash threw the paper down wearily. He had known all along that it was no good. Romance was dead, and the unexpected no longer happened. He picked up his pen and began to write The Adventure of the Wand of Death. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.